1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
0: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be speaking to Dr. Rowan Doran about his book titled No Return, Jews, Christian Usurers, and the Spread of Mass Expulsion in Medieval Europe, um, just out in 2023 from Princeton University Press. Um, This is an absolutely fascinating book that examines the expulsion of Jewish moneylenders from various places in Europe, but gives us the wider picture and the context around that it's not just Jewish moneylenders that are being expelled. There's a whole Christian church law canon element behind this rise of mass expulsions as a policy. Um, and I at least found that it brought kind of a lot of different threads together in a way that made a really clear, richer, picture um, then maybe we might be used to uh, if we look at this sort of time period and these sorts of things from particular narrow angles. So Rowan, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the podcast to tell us about your book.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Miranda. It's a delight to be here with you today, at least virtually.
0: <laughs> well, before we get into the book itself, um, could you maybe introduce yourself a little bit and explain sort of how and why you came to write this?
1: Sure, so I'm an assistant professor of history at Stanford University in California. Um, I originally hail from Canada. And when I started working on this project about 12 years ago, I thought of myself as an economic history of the Mediterranean, sort of really in the 11th, 12th, 13th centuries. Uh, And now by the time I finished this book, uh, I find myself sort of working on the legal history of England, France, Germany, um, and beyond in the later Middle Ages, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries. Um, I'm interested in medieval canon law, for instance, uh, which when I was doing my MPhil many years ago, I had a friend working on canon law, and I thought it was the most boring thing one could possibly study. Uh, and now here I am sort of absolutely fascinated by it. Uh, and I've also gotten very interested in Jewish-Christian relations, uh, as your sort of summary of the book already makes clear. So in writing this book and in trying to answer the questions that I encountered along the way, it really changed who I am as a scholar, which I think has been one of the most exciting things about the process. Now, why I decided to write this book, um, the subtitle of the book is, you know, Jews, Christian users, and the spread of mass expulsion in medieval Europe. Uh, But that's not at all what I had in mind when I started. I did not plan to write a book about Jewish Christian relations um, or expulsion or money lending. Uh, I started off, uh, as I mentioned, interested in economic history. And I was particularly interested in uh, questions about citizenship um, and how merchants used citizenship and multiple citizenships as commercial strategies, particularly the Western Mediterranean. And in the process of researching that, I came across repeated expulsions of Italian merchants from Barcelona and elsewhere in the Crown of Aragon. And I began wondering, well, how widespread were these expulsions of foreign merchants? Uh, And as I began sort of pursuing that particular thread, I came across expulsions of foreigners, again, Christian foreigners, on charges of usury and began to find quite a number of these uh, that I hadn't known about before. And they really had never been sort of pulled together as a phenomenon before. Now, many of these uh, foreigners who were being expelled on grounds of usury uh, were indeed engaging in professional money lending. They're what we we now know as what the Middle Ages referred to as Lombards or Cowarsons. Uh, in reference to their sort of supposed origins, either in southern France, at the French city of Cahors, uh, or in northern Italy, although most of them by the late 13th century are coming from uh, Piedmont in particular. And in some ways, it might have been a case of destiny that I ended up working on these Lombards because the very first academic conference that I ever attended just before starting postgraduate studies was in fact in the city of Asti, in Piedmont, hosted by the Center for the Study of Lombards Credit and Banking. Now, as far as I recall, nobody at that conference mentioned anything about Lombards being expelled. Um, and I might not even have noticed it if they had. Um, but I certainly didn't think at the time I was going to work on Lombards. But, you know, my research evolved. I started following different threads. And here I am back to looking at Lombards being expelled. And I knew something uh, when I started that particular part, or research uh, avenue. I knew something about expulsions of Jews. But I figured that, you know, so much had already been done on Jewish expulsions, you know, surely there wasn't anything more to be said. So I tried to keep my focus on expulsions of Christian moneylenders. But by the time I finished my dissertation, um, it was clear that in fact, there was more to be said about expulsions of Jews. Um, I I discovered all sorts of parallels and intersections and comparisons and crossovers. And so I then spent the next six years through writing this book, uh, which tries to offer a robust, I guess, comparative and connected history of the association between usury and expulsion during the Middle Ages.
0: Wow, that is a journey, and what a coincidence! That's, know, very... Really <laughs> That's very cool. It's very cool. Thank we'll you for, for anybody sharing anybody with to, Yeah, go ahead. Tell us more. Anybody wants to
1: work on this topic? Um, you know, the nice thing about doing research in Piedmont um, is that you know the wines and food of Piedmont is delicious. So you know, when, when yeah. I should have known when I was setting on a research topic um, that I should choose my research interest based on sort of excellent and wine. But that, again, was a happy coincidence.
0: Yeah, I must admit, I personally have never really factored that in. And I'm sort of kicking myself now. How could I have missed such an obvious thing to think about? Um, So very good advice, I think, for many of our listeners. Um, And I think something you kind of raised in that answer, the idea of um, money, what we would call money lenders or what was called then. And there's obviously the book goes into much more detail than we will. But I think it is quite important for us to sort of start with a foundational understanding of like, what exactly is it that we're talking about here? Because usury and money lending can quite often get conflated. But I learned from the book that there is an important distinction. um, And there were lots of things kind of changing around the profession of money lending in this time period. So before we get into kind of who got expelled and where and when and why... Can you help us understand kind of what did professional money, look, money lending look like during this time period? Why was it sort of a profession on the rise?
1: Certainly. So you know, throughout the Middle Ages, in, you know, in all human societies, there are needs for credit. And in the sort of high and late Middle Ages, um, this spans you know, the, the full gamut of society from kings and popes all the way down to peasants. And obviously, when one is dealing with very large sums of money, you know the sorts of sums that are being lent to kings and popes and other important figures, there are you know various sort of sophisticated forms of credit instruments um, that don't even necessarily require sort of pawns or pledges, um, uh, although in some cases they still might. You know, one thinks of sort of crown jewels getting pawned at various points uh, in the Middle Ages. Um, but then, if we go down the spectrum, down the social spectrum, uh, all the way down to kind of city dwellers, and even so far down as as peasants, um, we get to sort of level of pawnbroking uh, where, which obviously, you know, most people know how pawnbroking works. You, you go in with an object, uh, you give the object to the pawnbroker, um, and then they give you a sum of money that is less than the value they think they can get for selling that particular object. And then you have a certain amount of time to redeem it before they can auction it off. And throughout sort of the 12th, 13th, 14th, 15th centuries, uh, what's important to note is that professional credit activities. So let's say people who are, you know, formally presenting themselves as providing credit, not just sort of ad hoc lending or uh, monasteries sort of offering someone a bit of sort of a flexibility on when in fact they're going to have to pay their uh, their dues. Um, but people who sort of specialize in this uh, can be both Jewish and Christian. So one of the great myths of the Middle Ages is that sort of money lending was a monopoly of the Jews. That is, you know not true anywhere at any time in the middle ages um although there are certainly places and times when jews are let's say disproportionately uh, involved in certain areas um or when it's, when it's disproportionately important as a source of revenue for jewish communities but you know the key to the book is the fact that throughout the middle ages at least the Late middle ages uh, credit and professional money lending is being done by both christians and jews and we have you know The actual sort of nature of this looks quite different in different places. Uh, Jewish money lending in England, for instance, looks very different than Jewish money lending in Austria. There are different sort of governmental organizations of whether it needs to be registered with a government official, whether it needs to be secured with land or sort of movable objects. And the same thing goes for Christian money lending, wherever it happens to be, at least insofar as it gets regulated. And usually Christian money lending is a little less regulated than Jewish money lending, partly for problems to do with canon law. Um, Now, uh, canon law, again, most people think is very boring. It does, in fact, have a major impact on how uh, Christians and Jews and others in medieval Europe go about living their lives. And so far as money lending is concerned, the main obstacle here is the longstanding prohibition on lending at interest um, uh, that we find in the Bible. Um, It gets reiterated sort of ambiguously in the Gospels, um, and it gets picked up by medieval church thinkers and gradually gets more and more elaborate, more and more developed, uh, more and more expansive uh, over the course of the 12th, 13th, 14th centuries. So, what counts as forbidden usury, as it were? So, essentially, in the eyes of many medieval church thinkers, any interest on a loan can be usury, can be usurious and hence forbidden. But there are many, many people who go about their lives in medieval Europe with a very different attitude of what usury is. And to them, usury is much like it is for us today excessive interest on a loan. And what excessive is obviously depends, again, on sort of where you are and what the circumstances are. Um, but one of the things I stress in the book is that what counts as usury is really in the eye of the beholder. And we can't sort of just take the definition of, you know, a particular 12th century theologian or a particularly 13th century canonist and say, well, this is usury. In fact, there's many, many different definitions of usury. Um, and there are also many definitions of sort of who counts as a usurer and that question of kind of, you know, who is a usurer also ends up being very important to the book because there are plenty of people who are doing what might count as usury uh, in the eye of one person who do not get condemned as being a usurer uh, in any formal sense. Hmm. So, you know, why you, you did also ask why it's increasing? Um, very quickly, uh, as many who work in the Middle Ages know, twelfth, thirteenth century is a period of economic growth. Um, we see increasing monetization, which also means a need for money. Um, we also see increasing urbanization, more and more people living in cities. And just the nature of the trust networks living in cities means that people often no longer have sort of neighbors, major landowners to turn to for short-term credit. So they need to turn to professional money lenders. And hence the importance of both Jews and Christians as professional money lenders in urban contexts in the later Middle Ages. That was a long answer. I apologize. <laughs>
0: <laughs> but a really helpful one, um, because I think that sort of lays a lot of the threads out that we're going to see begin to entangle and come together um, as we sort of pursue this story of seeing kind of who gets expelled when and why Um, and kind of i think the last piece that we might need to um discuss before we get into that entanglement is um on the other side right users being expelled okay expulsion as a punishment was that a general thing that was already happening? Could you get expelled for other things? Um, to what extent was expelling users in particular kind of unique within the realm of this punishment?
1: So from the 11th century onward, we find the expulsion of heretics. And we, although by the end of the 12th century, that sort of shifts in many parts of Northern Europe to sort of, you know, expelling them from life, as it were, sort of you, you, you burn heretics rather than banish them. Um, and in the late Middle Ages, we have lots of expulsions of vagabonds and beggars. And then, you know, th- from the 13th century onwards, as I found in the first part of my research, we have plenty of expulsions of foreign merchants. And those are what we think, what you might think of as being collective expulsions. So expulsions of those who belong to a group. But of course, we also have throughout the period, and, you know, indeed, going all the way back to antiquity and continuing on to uh, just with the present, uh, individual expulsions, as it were. So criminal banishment, political exile, and that's happening in the background. And then there's another phenomenon, what we might think of as sort of segregation, which is uh, what in some cases happens with lepers, uh, prostitutes in Southern France and elsewhere. And so, you know, the spatial concerns, uh, the question of whether it's collective or individual, these are all, sort of not, not just definitional questions, but they actually change what you're looking at. Um, you know, is someone expelled to a particular place? You know, when you're sent off to a monastery to be imprisoned in a monastery, um, you're being sent to that place or expelled to that place, or are you just being expelled from a place? They said, we don't care where you go, but you have to leave. And whether you're looking at sort of groups or individuals or putting them all together, it sort of changes how you understand the phenomenon. For, for the purposes of my research, I got really interested in the expulsion of groups, or what you might call collective expulsion, because this was really quite new in the Middle Ages. Um, about t- three decades ago, uh, scholar Benjamin Kedar uh, had an article that really shaped me when I started this project in which he said that sort of corporate or collective expulsion was a novel phenomenon in the Middle Ages. And you know, at first glance, that sounds, well, how can that be true? We have all these ancient expulsions. Um, but in fact, as he, as he argued, in the ancient world, you very rarely banished a whole community from your political jurisdiction you sort of, you move them around, right? So when the Jews get expelled uh, from Jerusalem um, and they get sort of deported to Babylon, um, but they're still operating within the space um, of the Babylonian sort of realm. They're not being moved outside of it. And the same thing is true larger than the Roman empire. the most time when they take groups out, you might be expelled from the precincts of the city of Rome, even maybe from peninsular Italy, um, but you're not driven from the empire as a whole. The one exception to that comes towards the very end of the Roman empire with heretics. Uh, And I think that sort of Christianity and questions of purification, the purification of space end up being really important in terms of this shift uh, towards sort of collective expulsion of groups out of particular spaces. So that happens late Roman empire and then it largely dies off. We find very little evidence of collective expulsion in the Byzantine or Ottoman empires. We find very little evidence of this in other sort of, uh, communities globally. I did a lot of reading in comparative punishment, looking at sort of ancient and medieval and early modern and modern phenomena um, in East Asia and South Asia and Sub Saharan Africa and Islamic world and Byzantine and Ottoman empires. And really, what Kadar sketched out as a hypothesis three decades ago is really quite true. Um, the emergence of collective expulsion with heretics uh, and then with Jews, as I with Christian users as well, in the Middle Ages really is something that is quite new. And so I got interested in sort of, well, why does this happen in the Middle Ages? What is new? And how does this spreading get accepted? How does a novel punishment like collective expulsion get sort of accepted as a normal thing to do to communities? We in the 20th century are sort of tragically used to this. It's sort of just part of the default landscape of how many governments have dealt with sort of suspect or unwanted or sort of victimized populations. But when it wasn't part of the default repertoire of governmental techniques, Sort of how did it become so? And usury ended up being an interesting avenue to explore because unlike leprosy, for instance, and the segregation of lepers, which has biblical antecedents, or heretics, which at least had sort of roots in late Roman law, there is no precedent before the Middle Ages for expelling usurers. Uh, And so as I was thinking, well, then how do they justify this? Um, How do you justify something that's new? that seemed like an interesting theme to pursue. Um, and, you know, I was re- I was reassured here by the fact that when I went looking in the writings of 13th century canon lawyers who were trying to find comparands for this new punishment of sort of usury and expulsion, like they really couldn't find any. Um, you know, they were <laughs> scouring canon law, they were scouring early church sources, they're scouring the Bible, they're scouring Roman law, and they struggle. So that was kind of the perfect launching point to say, okay, this is new. Even they can't really explain sort of this new phenomenon in in reference to older phenomena, how does it spread? How does it become common? How does it become accepted?
0: Well, and that's, in fact, what you answer in the book. And so I will be challenging you for the next few questions to answer that um, somehow even more succinctly um, in the form of an interview with the caveat, of course, to our listeners that the book has all of the detail. So if you want more from these answers, um, I will direct you to the book. Um, But the obvious place to start with a spread is kind of the first expulsions of users. And you show in the book that this happens roughly at the same time in France and England. Um, And again, this kind of goes back to what I said at the beginning of sort of this book is things I was maybe aware of, but hadn't really put together into a wider picture. And this is a great example. Um, I at least had been aware of both of these expulsions, but never really thought of them kind of together or in contrast. Um, And in some ways, I felt justified once I read your explanation. I was like, oh, yeah, because they aren't actually quite the same thing. Um, The end result is they both expel usurers. um, And this sort of creates, in some senses, the norm that then spreads further. Um, But maybe you could tell us sort of how similar are these policies, the, the reasons they come up, how they're put into place? Is there a reason to go, oh, yes, this is the exact same norm and it's being done in two places? Or is the story maybe more complicated?
1: Well, thank, I love that question um, because indeed, right, by the end of the 13th century, we do have both Jews and foreign Christians who are being expelled on grounds of usury uh, in England and in France. And it's easy, and certain past scholars have looked at this and sort of said, okay, looking at this snapshot, um, particularly comparatively for Jews, but even if we lump in Christians in there, uh, the same phenomenon happening, same period, there must be kind of a unitary comprehensive explanation for this phenomenon. And the, the, the great art historian Erwin Panofsky had a wonderful sort of throwaway line in one of his articles um, that I think he may have developed in some lectures somewhere else about sort of pseudomorphology. Uh, that sort of, you know, you look at two things that appear to be the same and you assume that they must have emerged from the same trajectories. Um, and he says, no, no, we actually have to go look individually. And that's exactly what happens in England and France. So they do have quite two different trajectories in the 13th century of how we end up with the shared outcome of expelling both Jews and Christians for usury. So in England, um, we have a long tradition of expelling individuals from the realm. Um, there's political exile. One thinks of all those archbishops of Canterbury sort of you know, being driven out to the continent. Um, there's abjuration of criminals. So when criminals are given the option of basically fleeing uh, the realm um, rather than being put to punishment. In England, also, there's a tradition of expelling foreign merchants uh, regularly, sort of often Flemings, uh, in some cases, uh, other groups of merchants as well. So whenever there's kind of a time of crisis or political crisis, um, the king might order the expulsion of foreign merchants. So there's this tradition of kind of getting rid of people that you don't like, which is helped, of course, by the fact that England is an island, um, at least once you include sort of the rest of Britain. But the, the, the boundaries are clear in a way that is, is not true uh, of many continental jurisdictions. So when Henry III needs money, uh, he ends up sort of threatening Italian merchants Uh, With expulsion if they won't pay up. And his grounds are basically that I'm going to expel you on charges of usury um, if you don't pay up. Uh, And it goes back and forth. There are times he actually says, I'm expelling merchants um, because they won't pay me. Um, And there are times that I'm expelling merchants because they're usurers. But the end result is always that sort of they're meant to actually just sort of, you know, hand over free money or, or deeply discounted loans to the king. And then on the Jewish front in England, There was actually a tradition throughout the 13th century that really hasn't gotten the attention that it deserves, I think, in which Jews are threatened with expulsion if they won't do, quote unquote, service to the king, which again means money. And so throughout the 13th century, uh, there are periodic threats, um, usually in the context of sort of a major tax on Jews, that any Jews who are too poor to pay the tax or who refuse to pay the tax are to be expelled from the realm. And so we have this tradition of expulsion in England. Um, that sort of is building. And then meanwhile in France, uh, particularly during the reign of St. Louis, of Louis IX, uh, a really strong penetration of ideology from the University of Paris, from thinkers, from theologians of Paris about the evils of usury penetrates uh, Louis's court, penetrates other leading figures in France. And there we find expulsions of Jews who refuse to abandon usury, and also Christian foreigners who refused to abandon usury. And that's very much coming out of an ideologically charged context, where it's it's not about sort of just pay up. In fact, the king is working very hard to not get money um, directly from the confiscated goods of these usurers, um, but instead to make restitution. So it's the opposite of Henry III, um, who is just desperate to get money in anybody he possibly can. And so in France, we have sort of piety and purgation as the underlying theme for, for expulsion. But some of this ends up crossing over the channel. Simon the Montfort, for instance, who is very famous in 13th century English history, um, he ends up expelling Jews from his town of Leicester. And it's clear that he's influenced by sort of French sort of trends, Parisian trends in anti-usury thought. And then when Edward I bans Jews from lending an interest um, in his Statute of Jewry of 1275, he in fact um, quotes legislation that St. Louis had issued Two decades earlier, banning usury. So there is, there are different trajectories in the 13th century, but by the end of the century, there is a convergence uh, that we see then with the expulsion of Jews and Christians alike.
0: Thank you for explaining kind of those, the way that they are different, but then there's influences, and it kind of creates this complicated picture that sounds very clear when you explain it, um, both here and in the book. Um, but of course. We wanted to talk about spread. That was kind of the question you posed a few answers ago. Um, And in some senses, it would sort of seem obvious. Okay, well, the King of France has done this and the King of England has done this at the same time. Well, surely that would be enough in and of itself for the practice to spread. Um, But we then, of course, also have the Catholic Church getting involved. And here we come back to the canon law that... I don't know if I personally would have the patience to read through the archives for, but I'm glad you have, because the fa- stuff you found and can report back to us is actually really interesting. So can you tell us about the council at Lyon and what was so significant um, about what was decided there in sort of the story that you've been telling us?
1: Sure. So at the second council of Lyon, 1274, the church fathers gather. And among the things on the docket is the problem of usury. And there have basically been complaints coming in um, during the sort of the preparatory phases that the existing sanctions against usurers are, are failing to dissuade Christians from usury. And it's key to remember here that most of the concern around usury throughout the 13th century in most of Europe is about the danger of Christians doing it, um, not the danger of Jews engaging in it. That was sort of, well, better the Jews should do it than the Christians should risk their souls. And so it was clear to the assembled conciliar fathers that um, the spiritual sanctions weren't working. And so they take inspiration from Louis IX, who had just issued an ordinance recently uh, banning uh, or expelling foreign moneylenders from his realm, uh, and they decide to sort of turn this into church policy overall. And so they draft a statute that orders all secular rulers to expel manifest users from their jurisdictions within three months. And what's remarkable about this, you know, this first version of the statute is the most sweeping call for sort of the expulsion of wrongdoers since justinian you know not since basically you know justinianic legislation on heresy have we seen european authorities issue such a dramatic call for the collective removal of wrongdoers so it's a pretty dramatic statement Um, you know it's not something that finds a great deal of support in canon law as a punishment Um, it is very much drawn from new political repertoires i.e louis the ninth now they very quickly realized before or soon after the end of the council that it's going to be too much to say all users must be expelled. And anyway, the people they're really concerned about are these professional figures, these Lombards and Cohorses who are coming from Northern Italy and Southern France. And so they revised the decree so that it only applies to foreigners. But one of the problems is in the middle ages, like who counts as a foreigner, right? What language do you use to capture that particular sort of status um, in a world of sort of overlapping jurisdictions and complicated political claims and all sorts of competing ideas of membership? So they, they end up having, you know, certain terminology that they, they pick up on, um, uh, and they have to do something that doesn't have the wrong meaning in canon law and doesn't have the wrong meaning sort of in secular law, and it ends up being kind of a term of art that they use that nobody's quite sure what it means, um, and that causes all sorts of complications afterwards for the people who have to actually implement this decree. Um, and in fact, even more than complications, it creates loopholes uh, for all these professional moneylenders to get out of actually being expelled by saying, oh, no, no, I'm not a foreigner. Um, I now am a citizen of the town in which I'm lending, or various other stratagems along those lines. Um, Now, what's also important about this decree is that it doesn't specify explicitly that it only applies to Christians. Uh, Nowhere does it mention Jews, and it's very clear from the evidence we have of the drafting, from eyewitnesses' accounts, um, and even from internal evidence in the decree itself that it's only meant to concern Christians. But it doesn't say that anywhere and that ambiguity ends up being important
0: Hmm. in fact the ambiguity ends up being important um but you also talk about kind of some other maybe oddities of the practical side of things um from these accounts that we also need to understand in terms of the implications of this decision and kind of how it goes from being talked about in a council to actually Um, impacting people Uh, and this was I must say one thing I really appreciated about the book that you don't just kind of go oh well it was written in canon law therefore that must be what actually happened um, and investigate kind of okay well they made this decision but then practically then what Um, and I was fascinating to read that the sort of dissemination of this decision or the lack of dissemination I suppose in some cases um, really did have an impact so now That we understand a bit about kind of what was decided, what was sort of explicit versus ambiguous, um, what happened when this council kind of then decided, okay, now we have to put this into practice?
1: Miranda, I'm so glad when you say that you actually liked reading this part of the book because uh, <laughs> it was something that I struggled so hard with to make it a readable and be concise because much of the this part of the book, um, is concerned essentially with silences and absences, it's sort of you know hunting all over the place for things that aren't there, uh, that people don't end up copying the decree, they don't end up integrating into their local sources. And so um, I'm glad when you say that sort of, you weren't sort of ordered of your mind by a chapter that in many ways is sort of saying, you know, here's another genre where it doesn't appear um, or it appears in sort of mutated form. Because um, when I started off, um, I I sort of had you know, the, the, the implicit narrative dissemination that many people have when they're thinking about uh church the later, later middle ages you know oh the church says the jews have to wear a distinguishing badge oh the church says you have to take communion once a year and you know if if pushed um you might say well okay maybe not everybody knew that or maybe it didn't make it all the way down but sort of implicitly people tend a lot of scholars tend to write about these decisions as if somehow eventually everybody knew about them and I was really interested in, well, you know, how did people know about them and what did they actually know about? Like this decree is fairly long. It's got some fairly technical language. Like, what ended up actually making its way down to local authorities and local communities? And so I try to think, well, where would you go to trace this? You know, obviously a lot of oral culture is lost, but in, the, in, in written terms, how would you actually track the dissemination of a new church norm? So one thing I looked at was sermons. Um, I looked at sort of Lots and lots of sermons on the cleansing of the temple, um, on Jesus sort of ejecting demons, um, on condemnations of usury and trying to say, okay, do any of these sermons mention this new requirement that you should also expel usurers from your midst? And in fact, like almost none of them do. I think, you know, hundreds of sermons, and almost none of them mention this. And it's partly because most of them hew to fairly traditional exegetical forms rather than integrating new canonical penalties. They focus on sort of you know, the spiritual cleansing you need to do. You must sort of spiritually cleanse yourself from usury, um, but they don't say, you know, go out and actually drive usurers from your town. And I was looking also at confessional handbooks and handbooks for preachers and pastoral treatises. And certainly the decree gets mentioned some of these, um, but often in very abbreviated form um, and frequently the expulsion penalty gets dropped altogether. Um, and instead they pick up on another provision in the decree that says you can't rent houses to usurers. So that's fairly common, um, but often the expulsion penalties is gone. Uh, And then also many of these treatises just keep on repeating old material. They just don't update with the latest and newest decisions that are coming out. So you get sort of 15th century handbooks that are still repeating early 13th century material with none of the new stuff being added in. Uh, And then synodal statues were probably the most painful part of this process to hunt down. (laughs) Uh, um, At Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, sort of orders all bishops to get together annually uh, for for um, for diocesan synods and to gather their clergy and kind of relate to them decisions that are made at provincial councils um, and provincial councils are also supposed to meet and those are supposed to kind of uh, take new decisions that are coming out from councils and people to and things and, and transfer those down in sort of legible form to uh, sort of the clergy and the communities and their South African bishops. And so I figured, okay, well, you know, the church sets up this system for disseminating new law down to individual dioceses and down to the individual clergymen. You know, this would be the natural place to go hunting for the dissemination of this decree. And so I tracked down about 1,500 sets of synodal statutes from the late 13th and 14th centuries into the 15th. And out of these 1,500, and I, mean, I was running all over sort of you know, Europe, tracking these things down and writing to all sorts of and librarians and archivists and friends that I knew in different places and old MPhil colleagues who could go and look at sort of you know English evidence and I mean really looking all over the place. Out of 1500 st- 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 statutes that I look at, only about 30 explicitly mention this new expulsion provision. And about 15 called generally for the uh, enforcement of the decree as a whole without actually saying sort of what that means. They just say you know enforce the new decree on usury. And so, you know, what I found, you know, looking at all these different sources was a lot of reworking, as I said, that the expulsion penalty gets dropped and a lot of resistance that a lot of bishops and others just really weren't interested in promulgating this new penalty in their jurisdictions. And in fact, the only time that we find bishops actually enforcing it is in cases where their chapters that they're fighting with with something else um, or other local actors say to the bishops, you know, There's this decree that says you have to expel users from your jurisdictions, and if you don't, you are automatically suspended from office. So the only time we actually see bishops doing this is when sort of local political struggles end up, you know, invoking automatic suspension from office as a threat, and then we find bishops actually enforcing expulsion. Otherwise, there's pretty widespread noncompliance.
0: So the obvious question is why, right? If the church cared enough about this to make this decree, why then... Is it not being enforced?
1: Great question. And I I still, you know, there are days I wake up and I still think like, do my explanations account for like such systematic noncompliance? I think a lot of it does go down to either complicity. A lot of the bishops, in fact, are either relying on Jewish or Christian moneylenders for loans um, or are... Profiting from them. So they would sort of, you know, grant a license to Christian money lenders, for instance, and in return for an annual fee, they allow them to sort of do their pawnbroking or their money lending in other forms and sort of leave them untouched by church sanctions. So in, in some cases, it's just complicity. And we, and we certainly have evidence where um, local figures or particularly zealous anti usury activists are complaining uh, that bishops are indeed complicit with money lenders. And that's why they're not enforcing the decree. But I think there's also a lot of apathy. Uh, We tend to notice the texts when we're thinking about the history of the Usury Prohibition that are the most vehement and the most forceful. And many of those are produced in France uh, and by thinkers associated with Paris or who are trained in that tradition, especially in the 13th century. And those individuals in that line of thinking does play an important role for the conciliar fathers at Lyon. It does shape the thinking of a number of those in the Papal Curia. But there's an awful lot of figures in most of sort of Western Europe, most of Latin Christendom for whom usury just doesn't seem to be that big of a deal. Um, you know, they might repeat in some you know, sermons or in their local statutes, some general combinations of usury. And they'll say, you know, this is terrible and you shouldn't do this. But they're just not all that interested in investing political capital uh, or, or even spiritual capital in some cases in actually enforcing these sanctions. The if you is kind of, you know, okay, leave it to the individuals, they can repent to their confessors or they can burn in hellfire, I suppose. Um, I have other things to worry about. And I think in some ways it's one of the challenges of sort of everybody writing since Weber, uh, who obviously had you know, lost to say about the church's usury prohibition, that we sort of assumed that the church and that the church hierarchy cared as much about usury as the surviving text said it did. But there's been surprisingly little work on the actual enforcement of these penalties, um, of the church's canonical penalties against usurers. And when you actually get down into sort of court records and, you know, again, looking at expulsion in this particular case, um, we realize that a lot of these anti usury texts are really sort of exhortative rather than being reflective of actual realities on the ground. Um, but I do think there's more work to do on how usury sanctions were implemented and probably lots of other church sanctions as well. Um, that involves sort of looking past these normative texts and looking for actual documents of practice.
0: Mm. Because of course, um, although there is quite a lot of non-compliance for a number of reasons, um, there are a lot of expulsions. Um, A whole bunch of Jewish moneylenders or people that the state thinks are Jewish moneylenders get expelled. A whole bunch of Christian moneylenders or people the state thinks are Christian moneylenders also get expelled. Um, And you have in the book some great maps that detail kind of of those two categories where things were happening. Um, And the dots really do go together, right? Um, Where usurers are being expelled, it does very quite often seem to be the case that it's the Jewish ones and the Christian ones, um, not just one group or the other. Um, But then it stops. So what caused, you know, we've talked a bit about the kind of on the ground lack of enforcement in a lot of cases, but there's also these high level expulsions going on. And yet the church thinkers who came up with um, this decree and, as you said, sort of exhorted people on the ground to do something about it um, seem to have changed their minds. What's up with yes. that?
1: <laughs> so uh, first of all, I'm glad you mentioned the maps. Uh, I was really excited when I first generated these maps, which look at the spaces in which Jews and Christian users are expelled. And, and indeed, um, uh, you know, the book looks even at expulsions of Jews uh, where usury isn't at stake. I'm also interested in sort of um, you know, what are the other reasons that people call for the expulsion of Jews. But when you actually map out these expulsions together, the maps are almost identical. And it was one of those moments where sort of you know, I, I, I plotted one map and then I plotted the other map. And I was trying to figure out like, well, wait, wait which, which is which is the map of the Jews and the map of the Christians um, and the foreigners. And they're almost identical. And that's when it really clicked that this project had to be comparative. How is it that the same spaces uh, that expel Jews, usually on, the, on grounds of usury, are also expelling Christian usurers um, and vice versa. So that's, that was one of those moments that sort of convinced me that I had to actually spend, you know, six more years revising this book into a comparative and kind study. And so certainly in, in terms of actually sort of why, why the, the changing of minds, as I mentioned, you know, the decree isn't supposed to be used or isn't intended to be used against Jews. Now we certainly have rulers who are expelling Jews on grounds of usury, quite independent of the decree. So, um, you know, when Edward I of England expels Jews in 1290. Uh, he doesn't cite the decree of Lyon as justification, um, although there's there's certain aspects of it that might be hanging around in the background, as I argue in the book. But it's not his direct inspiration. But for many other figures. Uh, in the late 13th and then the 14th centuries, they do read this decree and they say, hmm, it just says expel user, foreign usurers um, uh, from your domains. And maybe that applies to Jews as well. And so we do find local authorities sort of calling for the expulsion of Jews uh, and Jews engaging in money lending uh, pursuant to the decree. And this obviously attracts a lot of discussion among. Um, canon lawyers, because we end up having the most influential canonist of the early 14th century, uh, an Italian canonist called Giovanni d'Andrea, who specifically raises the question in one of his commentaries, you know, does this apply to Jews? And he goes back and says at the very beginning of his commentary, like the opening sentences, he says, this canon was made on account of concerns about Italians traveling about and lending at usury. You know, that is the intent of this canon. And what's important is that um, that commentary becomes hugely sort of popular, very widely circulated. And so a lot of sort of communities might be thinking, do we have to sort of expel Jews pursuant to use wrong fraud unless we be it, you know, unless we suffer its automatic sanctions. Someone might sort of then pick up a copy of the latest commentary on the decree and it says, no, this is made um, for Christians. But of course, not everybody reads legal commentaries um, and certainly not everybody reads them very thoroughly. And in the 15th century, we even have a pope who gets asked um, by the Council of Mirandola in Italy, you know, they basically, someone has said to them, you actually have to expel the Jews living in your town because of this decree. And they say, hmm, what's going on? And they write to the university professors in Bologna, which is nearby, and they get conflicting answers. And so they write to the pope and say, do we have to expel Jews? Have we, in fact, you know, um, sinned? Uh, or or, 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 or and, and excommunicated ourselves by harboring Jews in our town. And the Pope responds, you know, uh, I absolve you of your sins, but you have expelled expel the Jews. And what's fascinating about that is that at this particular moment, the Pope is living in Florence. He's just fled Rome. It seems to be a pretty hasty decision. And then a few years later, people come back to him and are like, really? Is that what you're supposed to do? And he reverses himself. He says, actually, oh, no. Um, uh, according to the standard commentary on the decree, um, which cites an eyewitness account, this decree was made to concern only Christians. So no, you don't need to expel Jews. But by that point, it's already too late in some ways because the idea that you should is now out circulating. Uh, and we get sort of uh, legal opinions that end up circulating around Europe. That um, even after uh, the Pope and others have said, no, it only applies to Christians, they're already out there circulating. They're already saying, yes, this applies to Jews. And, you know, there is no sort of medieval hotline to the papal curia um, in many places. There's no kind of you know, hotline to the University of Bologna and the law professors there. So people end up answering this question with the texts that they have to hand. And those texts in some cases say, yes, this decree does demand the expulsion of Jews. Uh, and we find a number of cases in Germany in particular, um, but also in parts of Italy where Jewish communities are expelled um, for contravening a decree that was never meant to apply to them in the first place.
0: Well, that's mildly depressing, um, but also quite fascinating to, again, go back to this idea of sort of how does the church disseminate its decisions Um, and remembering that kind of history as it played out is not necessarily the same as like, here's an official document we can currently see in an archive, that must be what actually happened. Um, So thank you for trawling through all of those many, many, many documents. Um, and coming up with a coherent story to explain it um, and tell it to us now. Um, And that leads me really only to my last question, which, okay, I admit feels a little bit mean. The book has just come out. You have detailed how much work it was. Um, But is there anything you might have your eye on next?
1: So I'm still really intrigued by these questions about the unevenness of sort of normative knowledge and the uneven sort of dissemination uh, of new laws, new norms, new ideas. That's something that I did not think that would be the outcome of this book at all, but it has really lingered with me and it makes me wonder, okay, well, what else, if this decree looks this uneven as it makes it to the ground, if it gets reinterpreted in these radical ways, what else sort of in in medieval law ends up looking Mm. like this? And so the project I'm working on now is going back to synodal statutes uh, and other sort of local sources of law and trying to understand sort of how different canon law looks on the ground than it does in sort of the learned context. You know, if we were to write a history of what the church required based on what was being told to local communities, maybe preached in their communities maybe sort of um, spelled out in local statutes that are then sort of you know copied down and taken back by, by, by literate priests. What would that look like? What did they think they had to do or believe about Jews or heretics or any sort of ritual practices? And how does that vary across time and place? So it's, it's meant in some ways to be sort of rethinking medieval law from a very local perspective. And I'm also interested in that process in where the bishops fit in Because often when they end up repromulgating these laws, they don't say by order of the papacy or by order of the council, they just say, we order that. And we have this vision often of, you know, at least the narrative of canon law as sort of serving as this unifying force across much of Latin Christendom over the course of the Middle Ages. It gets more and more standardized. It's more and more centralized. And so maybe it's playing in this role as christians come to sort of be aware of their shared membership in a community of practice and belief but maybe lots of these people on the ground actually thought that what they're being told to do was just what their bishop wanted like maybe they don't know that in the next diocese the next province somewhere else in christendom others are being told the same thing if it's just being presented as i the bishop tell you to do this like, is it just seen as local? So I think there's a lot of questions left about sort of what law feels like and is believed to be and where the authority is coming from. And I'm trying to answer that in my next project.
0: Okay, please write that book and come back and tell us about it. That would be fascinating.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you again. And thank you for, for, for reading my book and for being so excited. It's it's wonderful to have an early reader and hear that what I'm trying to argue is already coming through so clearly. So thank you so much.
0: Well, um, thank you for doing the interview and for our listeners who might become additional readers of the book, I will remind you that the title is No Return, Jews, Christian Users and the Spread of Mass Expulsion in Medieval Europe, um, just out in 2023 from Princeton University Press. Rowan, thank you so much for sharing your time and expertise with us.
1: Thank you, Miranda.